As the children are going, let's get our Bibles out this morning. We're in Philippians chapter 1. Studying our way through Philippians this morning, we're in verse 21 of chapter 1. I'm going to thank God for the word here, and then we're going to jump right in. Look at verses 21 through 26. Remember, Paul's in chains. He's under Roman house arrest. He's being escorted from place to place. As he's in bondage and lost his liberty, he writes the epistle of joy to the Philippians. And we're seeing joy in a man who's in a situation that most people wouldn't have joy. So there's keys for us here in how to maintain our joy. Father, we thank you for the book of Philippians. We thank you for all the epistles of the New Testament, Lord, their instruction and their wisdom and their insight that's a gift to us. And so, Father, we pray by the Holy Spirit that this word would come alive to us and that you would teach us the deep principles and the hidden pearls that, and, and just the treasures you've tucked in here for those who seek you be, beyond the point of convenience, Lord. We're here and our minds are alert, our hearts are open, and we want to hear truth this morning. We ask for it in Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. All right, we can just go home right now. I said the first there is that what a statement that is. We're going we're gonna to unpack that, but it's just a powerful statement Paul starts off with here. So quotable. It's a headline. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sakes. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your pride in Christ Jesus may be abundant because of me by my coming to you again. So there's so much in here as Paul expresses his heart to the Philippians. And we start off with this headline here, but you know, we've got to look at that verse 21 and kind of see what, what's really happening here. So many people often wonder what other people think. You know, you think, well, well, what does my neighbor think of me? Or what do my coworkers think of me? Or what does my boss think of me? You know, sometimes when you get a review and, and, and you realize they think, you know, much more of you than you thought. And sometimes you get a review and you think that's exactly what I thought. But we're often speculating and calculating and assuming what other people think. In war, both sides try to know the mind of their adversary. They spend incalculable amount of treasure and man hours trying to crack codes. During World War II, there were entire divisions of you know, the military that were given just to cracking the enemy codes. Why? So they could know the mind of the enemy. And people are always wondering what other people think. Have you ever heard someone say, like, uh, a penny for your thoughts? How many of you heard that expression? I never answer because, you know what, my two cents is worth more than a penny. And I'm like, a penny for my thoughts? What are you trying to do here? Let's renegotiate the deal. I'm not telling you anything. But people, they always want to know, they always wonder, what are you thinking? And, you know, they, they, they want to get into your mind. They want to know what makes you tick. How about married people? Married people are always wondering what they're thinking. You know, she's all across the table, and she's smiling at you, and you think, you know, is that a good smile or is that a bad smile? You know, women will lay in bed and look at their husband. I wonder what he's thinking. Ladies, it's never anything that interesting. 
You know, I bet she's thinking about another one. No, we're, we're thinking about, you know, if I drill the hole out in that carburetor and put a hose there, I bet you I could get my Honda Civic to pull a wheelie in the driveway. I've seen it in a cartoon. I think I can do it. You know, it's never that interesting what we're thinking. And men, don't try to figure out what your wife's thinking because she don't know what she's thinking, okay? Just smile and wave. So people are always trying to get into other people's mind. And what we have here in this text here is Paul just letting us under the hood to see what's going on. He introduces us to his inner monologue, his stream of consciousness. He lets us see what he's wrestling with in the theater of his mind in this current situation that he's in. Now, Paul knows the predicament that he's in. He's not ignorant. He doesn't have rose-colored glasses on. He's not thinking, oh, everything's going to go my way. No, Paul knows that at any minute, the Romans who have him under house arrest can decide in any court to kill him. So he knows that these guys, you know, they're carting me around for a defense of the gospel. They want to see if I'm uh, seditious, if I'm trying to overthrow Rome. Not only do I got to deal with the Romans who don't understand me and they have the power, you know, literally to put me to death, but I got a group of religious zealots following me around. The Pharisees were following Paul around from place to place trying to tell the people who were in charge that this guy's a bad guy and you should put him to death. And not only that, as we studied, Paul had some ambitious preachers within the church who wanted to get rid of them so that he, they could take his place. Could you imagine being the Apostle Paul? The, the, the government's trying to take me out. The religious group's trying to take me out. People in my own, you know, church are trying to take me out. So for Paul, death was a very real possibility. And he faced it in a very pragmatic way. He didn't come unglued. He didn't come undone. He just looked at it in such a way that, you know, his reaction speaks to us. It should provoke a question in us. How do we view the issue of life and death? So many of us cling on to life so much. And, 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 and death is something we don't even want to talk about. But Paul faces these two issues. And he does it in such a way that it provokes us to ask ourselves, how do we look at life and death? I think we can all agree that we should have a different perspective than the world has. We should have a different response to life and death than the the lost have. Amen? In fact, it should be the polar opposite. Uh, People who don't have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, whether they'll admit it or not, are confused about the purpose of life and they're petrified by the prospect of death. What's the question in the world? Where do we come from? How do we get here? What is life all about? What's the meaning of life? This is what's on the heart of people who don't know Jesus Christ. The minute you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and he saves you and he settles the the trajectory of your life and your soul and you feel the call of God and you see the gifts of God, you know what your purpose is. In, In some broad way, there's a relief there. So people who don't have a relationship with the Lord, they're confused about life. They're petrified by the prospect of death. You know, and and if we're being honest here, a good percentage of believers feel the same way. They're not quite sure what they're doing in life. You ever wake up some days and you're like, well, here I am again. What's, uh, What's on the schedule today? Am I making a difference? Do I have a purpose? Does anything I do, you know, matter? Christians. Non-believers, many Christians are afraid of death. And you say, well, 
why in the world would a good percentage of believers or even unbelievers be afraid of death? And the old Star Trek catchphrase comes to mind as I study this. Remember on Star Trek, they would, they'd have that little introduction, and they say, space, the final frontier. Except it ain't space that the, that's the final frontier. The final frontier is death, people. Death is the final frontier because it's the one thing that none of us here have experienced. It's the one thing that all, you know, you, if you're here and you're looking at me and you're breathing, you have not experienced death yet. You know, there's only one way to get out of life and nobody gets out alive. So death is the final frontier. And we don't like to think about it. In fact, I'm watching some of you, and you're trying not to think about it. You're like, I hope he moves on. I'm going to stay here for two hours now because, you, you know, you should never provoke me. But, see, death is the final frontier because none of us really know all the details, what it's going to be like. You know, is there going to be bright lights? Are the angels coming? Are they going to pick me up in a Cadillac? What's going to happen? Is there going to be a chariot of fire? Some of you need to smile a little bit. It's good for your face. And so death is the final frontier, and there are a lot of unknowns about death. And the Bible doesn't give us all the details about death. And so the uncertainties scare people. What's it going to be like? How's it going to work? Am I going to be aware? Is it, is it going to hurt? <laughs> Here's everything you and I need to know about death. I'm going to give you three points. Number one, the first thing we need to know about death is this. Jesus defeated death. Amen. Jesus defeated death. Death was a big issue. Amen. Everyone born of sin died in sin and died. And, and, we, and we had to deal with that. So death was universal. You know, it started with Adam and it kept going through all the generations. But Jesus stepped in and he stepped in and he did something about death. Listen to what 2 Timothy 1.10 says. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality into the light through the gospel. So look at that. Jesus took care of death by breaking the power of it. He literally abolishes it. For those of us who are in Christ, death has no more power over us. Amen. I don't know about you, but that's good news today, amen. I've done so many funerals. I've dealt with so much grief. I've looked at so many people who, with tears in their eyes who have lost loved ones and know there's such a difference between those who die in faith and die in relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a hope there. Why? Because look what it says. Death was abolished. He has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Look at that life instead of death, immortality instead of, you know, eternal judgment and punishment. And number two, the second thing we need to know about death is this. Death can't hurt us. So the answer to the question, is death going to hurt? No, it's not going to hurt. I don't know how you're going to go. I don't know how I'm going to go. Some people say, I want to go quietly in my sleep. I want to go out in a blaze of gunfire. I don't know. Uh, so, <laughs> however we go out, it's not our choice, right? You know. I think, about the, I think about this stuff because I do a lot of funerals, the ways people die. You know, and thank God he doesn't tell us. Rick, I want to talk to you about your driving. <laughs> Don't tell me. I'll just keep driving. I'm going to show up in heaven in the, still in the car. <laughs> Death can't hurt us. 
Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, but when this perishable puts on the imperishable and this mortal puts on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written. Listen, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs> Woo! I, I love being a preacher. I don't even have to preach. I just need to read the Bible. Amen. <laughs> Woo! I read that. I'm up alone in my office all week just reading, having a good time all by myself. I'm excited on Sunday because there'll be people here. But this is awesome, amen, that death is swallowed up in victory and that, you know, death has no more sting. Why? Because my sin has been dealt with. The only power that death had over me was my sin because I had to pay for it. And the wages of sin were death, but Jesus paid the price for me and for you. And so death can't hurt us anymore. Revelation 2.11 tells us that there's not only one death, but a second death. You know, every one of us, Unless the Lord comes back to take the church and he raptures us out of here, if we're not part of that generation when that happens, all of us are going to die. When I do funerals, I, say, I, I give an altar call and I say, all of us someday will be at a, a celebration just like this and we'll be the guests of honor. And, you know, there's only one way to get out of life and that's death. And death when we die, we, we who are in Christ go into the presence of God. But those who reject Jesus Christ not only will die the natural death, but Revelation 2.11 and other places in Scripture tell us about the second death. Listen to this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The second death happens at, at the great white throne judgment when the books are opened up and if your name is not in the book of life you have to answer for your sins and the final result of that is people are thrown into hell for eternity very sad reality i, I don't know about you i don't want to go to hell and i don't want anybody to go to hell not the worst of people, not the worst of people. I don't want them to go there. God never made hell for people. Hell was a place of punishment for the angels and for Lucifer who rebelled against God. But people like the angels sided with him and they get the same reward. So that would be not only one death, your natural death, but the second death when you're eternally judged. You and I are exempt from both of those. Not only will the first death not hurt us, the second death will not hurt us, amen. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> the third thing we need to know about death is this. Death is our ticket into the presence of God for eternity. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 5, 5 through 8. Now he who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has also given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident knowing that while we're in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, we are well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be in the presence of the Lord. Death is our ticket into eternity, into heaven forever. Amen. We, we have nothing to fear. Don't fear man, the Bible says, who can kill the body. All they can do is, well, I'll kill you. Well, I'll go right into the arms of Jesus. So it's a win-win for me, amen. <laughs> Jesus 
defeated death. Death can't hurt us, not the first one or the second one. Death is our ticket into the presence of God. And once we have crossed over from this life to the next eternally, we will be safe in the arms of Jesus. Paul's perspective on life and death should be enlightening to us. Faces the situation and it would create anxiety in most people. They're parading me around. They're bringing me before all these people. I got to give a defense of the faith. I got to kind of, you know, give a good speech. Otherwise, you know, this could be the end of me. Talk about pressure. You know, if I don't preach a good sermon, they're going to take me out back and that's it. Paul's like, every time he stood before somebody, if I don't make sense here, you know, this guy can put me to death. But he faces the whole situation in such an enlightened way that, you know, he has peace and he has joy. He's almost cheerful about it. And there's something in there. There's some principle in there we need to grab hold of so we can have the right perspective on life and death. Verse 21 is the quotable headline. We've already looked at it. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a tremendous statement that is. But I think, you know what, if we don't really analyze the whole thing, we can miss the most important part of it. A lot of times we read it like, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Woo, that sounds great. But we can't miss the part there that says, for me. Did you see that? Paul said, for me is to live as Christ and to die is gain. Now, that, now say, for me. Unless we can make that statement in a personal way, it doesn't have the same effect as it does when Paul says it. You see, for some people, to live isn't Christ, and to die is scary and trouble and judgment. So it all depends on the way we're living. Paul's saying, for me, you know, I'm living in such a way that I'm not scared of life. I'm not scared to live or to die. I'm in the right position. And we have got to be able to make that statement in such a way as Paul said it. For me, for Rick Leonardi, for Rick, to live is Christ. Is that really true? Do I live for Jesus? Am I about the Father's business like Jesus was? Am I a kingdom-minded person? Or am I all about my own stuff? Come on, you know it's easy to be all about your own stuff. To me, to live is, you know, do this and to do that and this sport and this pleasure and to collect these things and have fun and go on vacation. Or for me, is to to live as Christ. When we think about this, when we get it down to the nitty-gritty, it's kind of sobering, Amen. That can I make that statement for me to live as Christ and to die as gain? Because you know what? If we're not living for Christ, death is a little scary. We're going to talk about that a little bit here. But the reason death didn't scare Paul is because, uh, you know, he, he had everything in his life in order. Now, I want to tell you something. Death scares a lot of people because they're not living right and they know it. If you don't get anything this morning, get this. The way we live matters. Now, our works and our actions and stuff, they don't save us, but they prove whose we are. For me to live as Christ, well, then I'm going to live a certain way. And people who are not living right are afraid of death because they're not right and they know it. When a person's not living right, death immediately brings into focus the impending judgment of a holy God. You and I are going to stand before God and give an account for our lives. You and I are going to stand before God and give an account for what we've done with Jesus, of what we've done with the giftings he's given us. So when a person is not living right, whether they're a Christian or not, because there are Christians that are not living right either, can I get an amen? And you know, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a this, I'm a that. On Sunday, you're a Christian. On Monday, man, I don't know, the devil might not even hang out with you. 
Yeah, it's not how high you jump on Sunday. It's how straight you walk when you land on Monday. Come on. None of this pretend. None of this. Oh, I'm pretending. <laughs> the pretend doesn't work. So people aren't living right, and they know they're not. They're afraid of death. <clears throat> now, the person who doesn't believe in God, you know, and doesn't believe in the afterlife, people say, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the afterlife. And, 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 and then you would think, well, then they, they probably don't worry about anything. No, they're still afraid of death because it's an unknown. And a lot of that, I don't believe, and God's not there, and there's nothing, and you go into the dirt. They don't even believe that, but they're saying it because if they have to say that, if they say they do believe, then there's an accountability there. They need to stand before God and get right. So the person who says, I don't believe, they, they still might worry about death. But think about the person who says, I do believe in God. I believe in heaven. I believe in hell. I believe in judgment. I believe in sin. And I, I believe that, you know, I'm going to be judged for my conduct. That puts them in a really tight spot if they're not living right. I've witnessed to people, and they're like, yeah, I believe what you're saying, but you know what, I'm so bad, or I'm so messed up, or I've done so many things. I've had people say, oh, I've done so many things, it's impossible that God could never forgive me. All that's a lie, amen. God could forgive the worst of sinners, every sin, amen. <laughs> but, but people will wrestle with that. Yeah, I'm too bad, I'm too messed up, I'm not living right. And I know it. You see, the adulterer doesn't want to die in their bed of adultery and stand before God. I think about people committing immorality and immoral, immoral acts, and I think, what if their heart stopped right in the middle of that and they had to stand before a holy God? I would never want to enter into eternity that way. The drug abuser doesn't want to die of an overdose and step, and step into eternity ha having done that. And I mean, just the, I think about all the people we lose every day from drugs, from fentanyl that's pouring across our borders and the, the overdose deaths. It's horrific. It's a genocide. And there are multiplied millions of people stepping into eternity having overdosed. The alcoholic doesn't want to die in a car wreck and face the living God. The person in pornography and prostitution and immorality doesn't want to stand before Jesus. The rapist, the murderer, the violent criminal doesn't want to relish the idea of standing before the judgment of Jesus. So the way we live matters. And people who are not living right and they know it, they're afraid of death. Now for Paul, he says, for me... To live is Christ and to die is gain. Why could he say that? And here's the key. Paul was saved. Paul was in right relationship with Jesus. Paul was in the center of God's perfect will for his life. He was living right. He had a clear conscience. And because of all that, he had no fear of death. And I want to encourage you today. If, you, if your conscience is bothering you, if, if you're afraid of judgment, if you're not right with God, if you know about Jesus but you're not serving him, don't miss an opportunity today to get right with him and be forgiven today and have your conscience cleared, amen? <laughs> don't, don't leave this place still struggling. God will forgive you no matter what. Paul was in the right place with God, and so... Death couldn't shake him. He had no fear of it at all. Verse 22 captures the essence of how we should live as New Testament Christians. It says, but if I am to live on in the flesh, now we're looking under the hood here. We're seeing what he's thinking. This will mean fruitful labor for me. 
and I do not know which one to choose. Do you see how he's almost playful with this? Man, should I, should I live? Should I die? You know, should I just, you know, pack it in, let the Romans do what they want to do? Should I, you know, should I fight this out? You know, I, I mean, it's better to be with Jesus, but, you know, I got stuff to do here. You ever feel like that? Some days you get up, woo, I got stuff to do. Man, I'm anointed. I got, I got a call on my life. I'm excited. Some mornings you wake up, take me now. Today's a good day. We vacillate back and forth like Paul was doing, amen. I'm sure he had some days, you know, chained up in a dungeon somewhere with Silas or something. You know, there's all stuff gross down there with sewage, and all of a sudden, like, a big clump of mud falls on his head, and he's like, that's it. Just take me now, Lord. But he, he's kind of wrestling with this here, and he says, to li- if I live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor. Say fruitful labor. And I don't know which to choose. Now, this fruitful labor thing is an interesting concept. And for me, it's interesting that how you and I go from, you know, being involved in dead works, Hebrews 9, 14 talks about, and the unfruitful works of darkness that Ephesians 5, 10 talks about, to going from those things to fruitful labor. Let me me read this to you because first service wasn't picking this up. So Hebrews 9, 14 says this, How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, when you and I come out of the dark into the light and Jesus saves us and covers us with the blood, what? All the things we used to do that were dead works that produced no life, nothing good, nothing eternal, now we see some doing those and, and we're changed and what we do makes a difference. That's good news. Ephesians 5.10 talks about, you know, uh, we we look at this, uh, we're going to have fruitful labor. So we're out of the dead works, according to Hebrews. And then Ephesians 5.10 says, we're out of the unfruitful works of darkness. Listen to that. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even expose them. So we go from, you know, messing around in the dark and doing sinful things to pointing out to people, don't do that. That's killing you. We used to be right in there in the thick of it. We used to be the life of the party. We used to be putting all the stuff in our bodies and drinking in a riotous living. Now we're saying, don't do that. It's dead. It's empty. There's no life in it. (laughs) What a change. What a change in us. Look at when God changes us, when we finally surrender to him, we go from these dead works and the unfruitful works of darkness to fruitful labor. Now what we do matters. And the gospel we preach changes lives. And we can help people get out of the dark into the light. And we can take people with us to heaven, amen? The Bible says he who wins souls is wise. <laughs> Come on, you might have went from being a wise guy to being wise. Amen? God's done a work. Those dead works and the unfruitful works of darkness are now replaced with fruitful labor. Uh, Paul continues here in verse 23 and 24 with the two possible outcomes of the situation he's facing. And this this is a key here. He's saying, you know, I can live or I can die. And he's listing the two possible outcomes. And what he's doing here is he's showing that in his, from his perspective, both of those outcomes are great. 
He's saying, I could do this, and that'll be great. I could do this, and that'll be great. So he's in a place where, because he has allowed uh, the Lord to conform his mind, and he's allowed himself not to think like a man or think in the flesh, but to think in the spirit, he sees the two outcomes of life and death. Both of them are great outcomes for him. When when you and I look at life as a win-win, I'm telling you what, that is a real key for us to maintain our joy. Too many of us think we're not going to make it, we're going to fail, we're never going to produce, we're not going to win, everybody else is going to do it, but not me. You'll be blessed, you'll be blessed, but I'm not going to make it. Come on, I'm preaching this morning. Amen. These are the lies that the enemy tells us. Listen, you're going to make it. If God is for you, who can be against? Whoever Jesus started a good work in you, he's going to complete it. It doesn't matter how many times you fell down. It doesn't how many mistakes you made. It doesn't matter how many times you willfully sinned. God can turn it all around in a minute for you and accomplish his purpose in your life. Thank you, Jesus. Well, I'm not living right. Repent. Start living right. Try just a little bit. God will jump in right behind you and help push you up the hill. It's not our own strength. It's his strength. Fruitful labor. Now, all of a sudden, what we do is productive. And Paul looks at the two outcomes here, and he's like, whether I live or die, I I win. And that's the attitude we have to have to maintain our joy. He vacillates between the two options. Now, I want to say something about, you know, being a Christian. Being a Christian, uh, our works don't save us. Can I get an amen? Amen. If someone tells me, if I say, when you die, why would you go to heaven? Well, I'm a good person. I've done good things. I'm I'm not as bad as, you know, the other people I grew up with. Or I'm not like Hitler. You know, Hitler's always the big test. Hitler's just, I mean, he's like, as long as you didn't do what he did, you know, you should be able to make it. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, Not everything we do will produce an eternal reward as Christians. There are still some things we do that are dead works and they don't produce anything. Now, I want you to listen to 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 13. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, so Jesus is the only foundation that produces salvation. Listen to verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it was revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work to see what sort it is. You see, we're not going to sit before the white throne judgment. That's a judgment for sinners who rejected Jesus. But you and I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And what happens at the judgment seat of Christ is that our works are tested. How are they tested? They're tested by fire. And what, what we bring gets thrown into the fire. So if it's, you know, if it's the gold and the silver and the precious stones, understand that that's going to survive the fire. You know, if you throw silver in the fire and you ha- heat it up enough, you can, you can take the impurities out of it and make it more pure. The same thing with gold. You smelt it, you heat it up, you filter off the dross, and it's more pure. You see, the things we do with the right heart for the kingdom, those uh, fruitful labor, as Paul was talking about, those things will produce a reward for us. But if we show up in heaven with a cart full of wood, hay, and stubble, guess what? We're going to have a little bonfire before Jesus. And you say, well, will I be lost? No, salvation's a free gift. These things don't save us, but they produce a reward. 
You say, well, I don't need a reward. See, but, but you don't understand what the reward's for. I just want to go to heaven. That's good enough. No, you don't understand what the reward's for. The reward produces a crown for us with all the works that we did for the kingdom. So it gives us a crown. You say, well, I like that. I, I, I would like to walk around with a crown. No, the crown is not for us to walk around with. It's for us to throw at the feet of Jesus with a thankful heart for what he's done. Amen. I don't want to be in heaven and have nothing to give Jesus. I don't want to be in heaven and have nothing to show the Lord that I'm thankful for what he did in my life. I want rewards so I can give them to my Lord. Not everyone's going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, we say these things, well done, good, you know, and we all want to hear that. I mean, I don't want to get up there and they go, what are you doing here? Uh-oh. We all want to hear that well done, good and faithful servant. But there's a caveat. We've got to do well and be faithful servants. So let's get busy about doing the will of God, of being in the center of God's will, of being right with Jesus, of having a clear conscience before him. Paul finally chooses to stay and serve. Now I look at this and he says, I'm hard pressed in both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. We get it, Paul. We want to get out of here some days too. For this is very much better, yet to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sakes. Listen to verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy in the faith so that your pride in Christ Jesus may be abundant because of me by my coming to you again. So Paul says, I, I choose this. Now I want you to recognize something here. Paul didn't get a choice. Okay, for the rest of you guys. Paul did not get a choice. He was, God's will was God's will. So you say, well, why did Paul go through all these mental gymnastics and all this weighing and all this, I don't know what to do? Because he had to wrap his mind around the will of God and be able to accept it whichever way it broke. You see, he didn't really get a choice. He was going to die a martyr's death and he was going to glorify God with his life being poured out as a drink offering, as he said, amen. He couldn't have said, ha, God, I'm not into the martyr thing. Uh, I'm tapping out. We're done. Get somebody else. No, there was only one path for Paul. So his choice was a matter of his personal, you know, coming to a place where he personally accepted the will of God, whether it was life or death. What was his choice? Well, I'll, I'll stay and I'll minister to you, not because it's better for me, but because it's better for you. That's the right attitude. That's the right heart. Do we get a choice on when we die, how we die, or, or what our path is, or what our call is? No, that's in the sovereign hands of God who knows much better than us. But we do get to a choice if we're going to accept God's will, however it goes, and be pleased with it because we trust him more than our own instincts you see the person who says no 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 it's got to go this way and i can't go out this way and no and i'm not going to be executed by the romans that's not fair it's embarrassing no I i'm not doing it no paul didn't have that heart neither should we jesus said not my will in the garden but yours be done oh he said if this cup can pass for me if but it couldn't so he knew he had a path his flesh cried out for plan B. You ever get into the thick of it some days and you're like, uh, what's plan B? And God's like, plan B is to do plan A. <laughs> when choosing plan B, refer to plan A. <laughs> There's no plan B for us 
God's perfect sovereign will is the only path that will produce the joy that Paul had in his life. Paul chooses to stay and to serve. He knows that that was the better option for them. He chooses to serve the body of Christ rather than to serve himself. Listen, doing God's will will always boil down to serving others. You and I can't do God's will just serving ourselves and our own interests. Now, we have to take care of ourselves enough to keep ourselves in order so we're useful to God. You know, you, you never want to become so heavenly minded that you know earthly good. I've never met somebody like that, but I guess it's possible. The thing is, we have to keep ourselves in order. We have to keep ourselves physically, spiritually, and emotionally solid so that God can use us for his purposes. Amen. Well, you know, I don't brush my teeth anymore because it takes too much time, and I, I need to be busy about saving the lost. Brush your teeth. The lost will appreciate it. You know, well, I don't have time to do this, and I don't have time. Take care of yourself. Stay spiritually healthy, amen? But the balance between us taking care of ourselves and serving others the balance between those two things is where the battle to maintain our joy is fought and won. If I can put God first and the needs of others first and me somewhere's in the back, I'm going to have the peace of God and the joy of the Lord every day of my life. Listen, the world is lying to us, telling us, put yourself first and get all you can and can all you get and then sit on the can. You can't do that. that. That's a recipe for misery. There's no joy in that. Some of the people with the most accomplishments, the most amount of wealth, they got boats and planes and houses and yachts, and still they're miserable. Because that's not where joy comes from. i close with this. George Bernard Shaw had this to say about uh, us finding true joy. This is true joy in life being used for the purpose that you recognize yourself as being bigger than you and being thoroughly worn out before you're thrown in the scrap heap. In the end, becoming a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clot of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. Wow, that's powerful. Why? Because the world around us is so wrapped up in itself. All it does is complain, and it's immature, and I got this grievance, and this problem, and this, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm offended, and blah, blah, blah. And they complain that the world won't bend over backwards to make them happy. And God says, devoting yourself to something bigger than yourself, giving your life for the purpose of the kingdom, is where real joy is found. And you and I can make that choice every day. And if we do, we'll have the joy that Paul had to look at life or death in such a way that either of them are great outcomes for us. Amen. Let's bow our heads this morning. And Father, we thank you, Lord, this morning that the Scripture just brings us to a place where, God, that we can look and see the foolishness of what our flesh and the world wants us to do, Lord, and to, to find our lives and lose them would be such a foolish thing. Thank you, Jesus, that you overcame death. You defeated it, and death can't hurt us anymore. And death will give way to eternity in your presence. 